You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Dizzy Smith, whose career path has taken him from C++ to Erlang to management, and now back to C++. Along the way, we talk about package management and several other languages, including Go, Rust, JavaScript, and even Perl. And now, from Erlang to management to C++. All right, Dizzy, thanks for joining me. Hey, Richard, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, very excited to sit down and chat about programming languages. Yeah, uh, it doesn't have to be languages, but uh, well, you know, anything software related, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of which, so I wanted to start by asking you the story behind your dog's names, because you have <laughs> two dogs with awesome programming related names. <laughs> we actually we actually have three now. Uh, really? And they all, they all have programming names. So yeah, so Sudo, uh, spelled S-U-D-O, uh, was named uh, by my wife, Sarah Drasner, the incredible Sarah Drasner. That was our first dog, and she named it Sudo because the hope was that we'd say Sudo sit and, you know, we'd go to the last <laughs> right. time. Unfortunately, we're not actually in Sudo's Sudoers file, so uh, she doesn't do anything <laughs> we ask her to do. So anyway, that was our first dog. Our second dog was named Beam, or is named Beam, B-E-A-M, named after the Erlang VM. That nice. was my name. It was actually, um, I think it was, that was actually put in my head by a coworker uh, at DigitalOcean. And they're like, man, you should name it Beam. And I'm like, that is a good name. I like that name. They knew I liked Erlang. And then our newest puppy that we got in December, which is, we have so many puppies now, we're good, is Pico, named for both the editor, as well as the fact that he's just very tiny. He's like 10 pounds. <laughs> so. Yeah, and you won't get much bigger than that. So yeah, those are our three dogs. They're all named for programming things. I mean, I think people normally think that like Sudo is spelled at P-S-E-U-D-O or something. Oh. And they look at us weird when we tell them that's the name, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it's a programming term. Do they assume that Beam is like bean, like the, the food? Yes, <laughs> yes. In fact, bet, yeah. our, youngest, our youngest kiddo pronounced Beam bean for most yep. of till she was like eight <laughs> or nine. So yeah, it's a common problem, but you know, they're good dogs and, and we get a kick out of their names. Now, so were you doing Erlang at DigitalOcean or the, everybody just knew that you loved it? No, no, no. People just knew I loved it. No, we, uh, DigitalOcean, when I first joined DigitalOcean, we actually, most of the control plane was written in Perl, ah. which had started the process of moving to Golang. But uh, it was, yeah, then we never got into Erlang. Wow. So that's, I mean, it's been a few years since you were at DigitalOcean, but like, do, mm. do you think that there's probably a lot of Perl still running in production? At no, 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 no. We got rid okay. of most of that in the three or four years that I was there. Gotcha. There were still gotcha. some holdout pieces, of course, but but most of that was, was done uh, by then. Well, because Perl, I mean, people today, I assume, don't remember this, or, or a lot of them don't remember <laughs> this, but I mean, Perl was huge in the early web. Oh, yeah. I mean, Perl back then, I, I'm trying to think of like what a modern analogy it's maybe like python or php in terms of like i mean i don't even know if there is a yeah i mean i javascript i would say is probably the closest analogy to the in terms the, of just how huge yeah the prevalence yeah. of pearl right. i mean but pearl had a lot of really cool stuff for the time right like the regex yeah. support was really oh, yeah. profoundly good but also the um the thing i remember about pearl is the subprocess support you could spin up subprocesses huh. and pipe stuff in and out very oh yeah transparently like there was not a ceremony. lot of um ceremony around yeah. setting it up and redirecting the pipes and handling the sig childs and all that stuff i mean it was about as easy as bash like writing a bash script yeah like, yeah except it ran obviously way faster and you know you didn't shoot yourself in the foot with the syntax right much, right um depends but yeah <laughs> well i mean syntax wise Perl today at least does not have a good reputation for syntax no but i i think the thing is is like a part of that is, I don't know, Perl for me was always an interesting one because you could do stuff in it you couldn't do in any other language. The problem is you could do it four or five different ways and they all worked, right? Uh, which meant that naturally instead of, if you look at like the tools of like Golang and Rust, like you got these formatting tools now. I mean, I know JavaScript, TypeScript have ID and all that stuff. Like yeah. nowadays it's a more rigorous or it's more restricted sort of variations on how you can say things. But Perl was like, say all the things in all the different ways. It's more like a language, like a verbal language than a programming language is what I felt. Which like. as I recall was in, uh, intentional. Like Larry wall was like, yeah. a, I think a, had a, like a linguistics background maybe and, yeah. and wanted yeah, exactly. to make a language like that. And of course there's the famous Perl philosophy of, there is more than one way to do it, or Tim Toady for short. <laughs> right, that's right, that's it's right. Like, I had forgotten about that, yeah. Yeah, 
it's almost the opposite of like the, the Zen of Python where it's like, there should be only one, preferably only one way to do it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think, I, I think it is harder to build like really large scale systems if there's a ton of ways to do everything, right? Like it just makes it overwhelming. And I think there's, it's interesting to think about it, like just kind of zooming out. I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, like pretty clearly these days, I mean, like you said, like there's so many tools coming out that really kind of tell you which ways the wind's blowing in terms of like what people's preferences have turned out to be in the large, which is that, yeah, like fewer ways to do it. People like that more. Right. Um, <laughs> but I mean, back in the day, I don't think people looked at that and said, well, this is a drawback of Perl. I think it was just like, oh, that's how Perl is, you know? Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's true. I, what I remember is like people were really passionate or really, di- uh, I don't know if dispassionate, anti-passionate, whatever you want to call it, about <laughs> Perl. Like either they loved it or they hated it. Oh, that's funny. Now, to be fair, I was not as plugged into the sort of like, I don't know, developer community at the time. The way I got introduced to Perl was actually just that this is the first startup that I ever started. It was in college. It was me and a couple of other guys. And I had this idea for a thing we wanted to build. And none of us had done any web programming. We'd all done like Java, C, C++. And so we'd heard that, you know, there were people out there in the world doing web programming and like Perl and maybe a little bit of like Ruby and like PHP and Python. And we were like, well, we don't really want to use Java for this because it seems like nobody's doing that. But what should we pick? <clears throat> and what we ended up doing was we were looking around for some open source software that would sort of give us a starting point. And we found this forum called MW Forum that happened to be written in Perl that was doing a bunch of like authentication and like discussion board stuff. And we're like, cool, this does a bunch of stuff we want. Let's just use this code base as our starting point. We'll all just learn Perl. So none of us really had this, oh, we really love Perl or we really hate it. We're just like, oh no, that's the thing that the thing was written in. So that's what we're going to learn and, and build our company on. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I do feel like that's part of the cycle that languages go through, right? Like you've got the people who first create language and they obviously love it. Right. There's, uh, you know, always the people who are the naysayers for the language, whatever that language might be, yep. um, because of their experiences, because of their beliefs, you know, what have you. Yeah. And then you have the people that show up sort of on the side and are like, hey, I just need to get something done here. And this happens to be the right thing for me. Right. And it feels like there's a lot more of that the older language gets, right? And the, Totally the passionate people become less visible. The people who hate it don't care as much because they're tired of arguing about it, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, I, I will yeah. say JavaScript seems like it's not done that, interestingly, but most other languages seem like that. Hmm. As in like there's JavaScript still has that a lot of people either love it or hate it, but not that many people are like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, I know. I mean, obviously a lot of people think it's fine because like it's probably <laughs> the largest programming language in use these days, but it seems like there, there's still a lot, a very vibrant discussion, perhaps, as a way of <laughs> about the language itself in a way that other languages that have been around for a while, they still obviously have developments. There's still sort of microcosms where people argue about it, but it's not as front and center in the industry in the same way. True, true. Now, an interesting thing about JavaScript is that JavaScript has unintentionally ended up in there's more than one way to do it because the way that people use JavaScript is just so totally completely separate from how it was originally you know designed to be used that like the standard library and a lot of the fundamental language decisions were just like not really set up for like hey you're gonna have a million lines of code javascript code base right it was like no no these are gonna be tiny scripts that you keep in your head and so as a consequence of course like over the years there's been all this like exploration and community building to like try and make things better and then the standard kind of is like well let's come along and add some variation on the community specific thing but they only really add something once it's been in wide use but usually when they add it it's a little bit different for various reasons and then there's also of course the legacy way like the old api which they don't want to delete because that would break the web so you end up with just the fact that like the original thing didn't meet people's modern use cases ends up translating into three different apis for the same thing just on its own even though they're all trying to do about the same thing (laughs) yeah yeah totally there's a lot of i mean it's interesting because it yields a lot of diversity right in the ecosystem of of ways to do things but there's also a lot of diversity in the ecosystem which makes it hard to know you know that you can literally have two people working on both parts of the problem from different libraries and wind up with something very interesting yeah and the 
the sort of like the ecosystem effects on that are are like exponential in the sense that yeah. like it's not just <laughs> yeah like it is this person builds on that thing and then this thing their library gets popular and then now other people indirectly depend on that thing mm-hmm. which i think is at least part of why npm has such a reputation for like the exploding dependencies and, and ending up with like you know multiple but, different but versions i mean of- i have to say like i i've heard that complaint against npm and i get it Honestly, though, every other language I've seen that has any sort of centralized repository, so or, or way of managing dependencies in an automatic fashion, like GoLang, like Rust, there's a similar explosion of dependencies. Like if you there's GoLang projects where you pull in one dependency and suddenly you've got 30 different libraries you're using that you didn't even realize were a part of it. And it's fine, like it's not a bad thing, but I think that's just sort of a characteristic of, of languages that make it easy to use other people's stuff. That's a fair point. I haven't really done, I wonder if anyone's done that analysis, like comparing similar projects that are trying to build a similar thing and different. I guess it'd be kind of hard though, because the scope of the project, the particular things that it needs and the mm-hmm. particular libraries it uses would be such confounding variables. Yeah. That would be really, really interesting to see. I mean, I know like anecdotally, Elm projects have like a much smaller dependency tree than, you know, similar JavaScript projects that are trying to solve mm-hmm. the same thing. But it's hard to say, is that just because NPM's the size of NPM is just so many, like multiple orders of magnitude bigger. And if the Elm package ecosystem were that big, maybe you would see the same proliferation of dependencies. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I think, I definitely think there's something there around the expressiveness of the language enabling you to reduce the number of dependencies, right? But then there's also the side, like the thing I saw in the Erlang community, for instance, was we would wind up with a lot of different variations of the same library because there wasn't a centralized repository. And so everybody wound up writing, you know, it was very expressive. So a lot of times the libraries were like one file with like a hundred lines of code, which is, <laughs> you know, Erlang, but yeah, but like that, everybody would just do it themselves instead of trying to build that centralized repository. Now I know that's changed some, but it does seem like that's the more expressive the language is, if you don't have a centralized repository, you're going to wind up with more implementations of everything, but you can't actually see all of them. I don't That's know a good point. Is there, but yeah. I, anyway, I mean, I remember back before npm like doing JavaScript, and it was it was kind of the same thing. Like there was jQuery, which everybody would just download. Like once that came out. But yeah, I mean, as far as like, there was a lot of just copy pasting from somebody. I mean, I'm sure there's still <laughs> yeah. a lot of that that goes on, but mm-hmm. just like yeah, you know, like. So, you know, how do you do this thing? And there wasn't like, oh, I'll just, just NPM install this thing. It was like, no, you go on some forum and someone's like, oh, here, I wrote some code for this. Here you go. And they would never put a license right. with it either. They right, would be right. like, oh, you're free to use this. They'd just be like, here's the answer to your question. And then people would yeah. be like, cool, copy, paste, break the law, you know, move on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is how a lot of those, like, uh, those companies like Black Duck got started, right? Where they were actually going through, they built up these huge sort of web crawls of, of code out there on the web tried to figure out license if they could, and then scrawled through your code to understand it because there weren't well-defined libraries at that point. Like it was a lot harder to know if you're reusing code and yeah, et cetera. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's like one of the scariest things that you could have is like, you know, someone comes along and says, hi, I need to do an audit of all of your yeah. like open source licenses. And that's like, right. you know, <clears throat> well, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I've, I've tried to get in the habit of, of doing this, but I guess I'm not actually very diligent about like monitoring whether contributors to my open source projects are doing this too. But like, if I am going to use a snippet from some open source projects, I'll try to always have like some comment that's like, I am using this library yeah. here. Here's mm-hmm. the license. Here's the link to the license, you know. Because yeah, sometimes you don't want to install the whole thing. You're just like, I just want this one function out of these like thousands of lines of code. I just... I just let's pull that out. Yeah, and and I mean, there's lots of cases where that's the appropriate thing to do. You know, as long as you attribute it, and as long as you make sure the license is not incompatible with your own license, like of course, yeah, that's the right move because you don't want to add a whole dependency in that dependency tree just to get a specific function. Because we see like what was that thing that happened? It was a couple of years ago now, where that library on npm that did some real basic string thing uh, left pad. Uh, Left pad, right? Yes, <laughs> yep, right. Yep. Like, yeah. The, depending on that, was kind of an interesting choice. I mean, I'm sure it had some functionality people found useful, but also we saw the results of that of that choice. I think there's an even more notorious example of like you, you probably could have just not had a dependency here, and I, I forget if it's even or odd. Maybe it's both, but it's like a library that literally is like, I'll tell you whether or not a number is odd. It's like, come on, 
Come on. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that comes back to you should get back to basic programming there because you shouldn't need a library for that one. I, I, right. I mean, <laughs> if I were to try to defend that, I would assume that there might be some weird edge case around like JavaScript's modulo operator negative numbers or something. Like maybe there's like if you modulo two, it, I don't know. I don't know. But I think the argument I could come up with for not doing it with modulo is that you know, not everybody has has experience with that approach, right? Like True. understanding a library that does something versus understanding some of the math of how to figure out if a number is even or odd. I can totally see that, especially if you are sort of earlier in your career or whatever, and you haven't done a lot of programming, it might be easier to reach for a function, right? Because then you're yeah. like, okay, well, I get a function. And then that person, you know, who wrote the function has to understand the rest of it. But I'm deferring that. It's abstractions, right? But I... I don't know. I, I think it's really dangerous. Like there definitely needs to be a threshold there where you do know some of the concepts or else you're going to wind up shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, I do think it's a perfectly reasonable function to have in a standard library because, yeah, it's not doing a lot. Yes, you could just write it yourself. But at the same time, when I'm reading code, if I see that like is odd, I'm like, OK, I know immediately what that does. I don't need to sort of mentally pattern match on like, oh, yes, this, you know, doing the little trick here and, you know, yeah. <laughs> doing the yeah. math. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It does make it more readable. But but I don't think I would go as far as to bring in a library for that. If anything, I would like copy paste it into, you know, my own, I don't know if I have like a utils, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> something yeah. like that. I mean, there's, there's always a utils file, right? Like that's that's where all that kind of stuff goes, I find. There is, and it always bugs me. I always want to get rid of it or, or like find a way to chop it up into things with like more descriptive names just because it, it ends up being this just big, ever-growing pile of of miscellaneous stuff. And then it's like, when I'm not sure where something is, I'm like, well, maybe it's in utils, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, I, I find it's best sort of when you're in the early stages, right? Where you're just sort of pulling yeah. stuff together. You don't necessarily have a taxonomy for where everything's going to go. And then sort of as you garden the thing out, you wind up pulling some pieces out and putting graphing over <laughs> there, stuff like that. So Right. So in, in, I mean, you mentioned, I actually don't know what your background is with Erlang other than that you love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Let's see, Erlang. I so I started my career. I was doing a lot of C plus plus, and it's funny because I'm actually now writing C plus plus again for the first time in 20 years, and Ooh. I have a lot of feelings about that. But anyway, <laughs> I did a lot of C plus plus stuff. We I worked at a company called Jabber Inc., uh, where we were writing sort of commercial servers that did um, you know real time messaging, mm-hmm. and so you know we did a lot of. <laughs> I wrote so many C++ libraries to do threading, to do socket management, you know, mixtures of the two. So you do async socket management into thread pools. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, this was the early aughts. So there weren't a lot of people doing that at that point. Yeah. Not sort of at high scale. And I remember sort of one day I had heard about this thing called called Erlang. And so I, you know, downloaded the source code. I didn't even look at the language. I just was like, I wonder how they're managing sockets because they're supposed to be really good at it. Mm. And I got into it. I'm like, oh, man, they've thought of all the stuff that we've gone through. And it looks like it's more production code even than the stuff we have. But the big problem at that point was that it was not actually multi-threaded Erlang at the time. It was still sort of, yeah, it was green threaded. So it could only run in one process. You could run multiple Erlang VMs and have them communicate if you want sort of multi-processing, I suppose. But it wasn't concurrent, preemptively concurrent. And it was terrible with strings, which we were doing at XML protocol. So it was just not the right match. For so <laughs> oh, wow. I saw it and I was like, this is like super cool. And I'd love to use this, but it's just going to be way too slow for what we need to do. A couple of years later, I went to work for a dating website at the time. It was one of the largest dating websites in, in the U.S. at that time. And we needed to build a... <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot. That's quite a startup story there. But uh, we (laughs) wanted to build a whiteboarding protocol because we were all distributed. Okay, this is not not something people are using on dates, just so we're clear. They're not whiteboarding in the dates. Okay, okay. (laughs) Internal productivity. This was internal productivity. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, is like this dating website, you know, had been built. Uh, It made a lot of money for the original founders. Then they hired a bunch of engineers and had them working on cool stuff. So anyway... The first project I used Erlang and Anger for was this whiteboarding app because someone had written something, I think it, it was in Python or something. Maybe it was in Perl even. I don't know. But it was just very slow. And I was like, you know what? I have been wanting to use Erlang for a while. So over the Christmas break, I sat down and rewrote the server in Erlang from Perl or Python, whatever it was. And it was like 
you know, 10 times as fast because nice. of it was a binary protocol already, which Erlang is optimized for, you know, all the threading stuff, all that stuff. And it was great. And so then I went on to write a real-time statistical analysis system for fraud analysis uh, on the dating website. So you actually modeled every actor on the website in real time and the messages they were sending to each other and oh, looked wow. for relationships. And we did it all in Erlang and it was like super fast, even with you know hundreds of thousands of concurrent users. So it was so much fun. And it was just sort of kind of a revelation because I think I started in C++ land, especially... And I liked it at the time. I got to remember I was like two or three years in my career. I liked it because it made me feel really smart because man, if you can make C++ <laughs> do anything, you're doing great. <laughs> I told myself it was for performance. I told myself it was because of the strong typing, yada, yada. But I, looking back on it, you know, 20 plus years later, I'm like, no, I did it because it made me feel smart. Um, <laughs> and, and writing Erling let me, you know, when I started working with that, I was like, man, I don't have to be smart, which at this point, I'm like about 10 years into my career. I'm like, I don't want to be smart anymore. I just want to get stuff done Yeah, or be clever is maybe a better word. So anyway, so I just kept working with Erlang and then I hadn't worked with it for very long when I realized like the build system consisted basically of people copying and pasting make files. Uh -huh. And I was like, this is just not going to work. Like, I don't want to copy and paste make files. And I want to actually build proper OTP applications, which is like a specific packaging that, that Erlang uses and all this stuff. And so I, I sat down and I started writing a build tool to do that. There was another build tool on the horizon at the time, but they were going with the JSON format, which was very foreign to Erlang, the Erlang development world. Like they didn't do a lot of JSON then. They had their own term format, uh, text format that was kind of equivalent to JSON. So why would you use JSON stuff like that? So I, I wanted to write my own. So I wrote Rebar, which was sort of the first widely adopted, I think, build tool outside of Make. And then I wound up getting like the Erlang User of the Year Award, I think the next year for that, because people really started to use it. And then I went on to a company called Basho and we wrote a distributed database in Erlang. And we did sort of custom backends in C that interface with Erlang to do the actual storage stuff. And all sorts of, of neat distributed system stuff. So that was, I think that was sort of the last time. And then when I was at Basho was when I moved into management and that was sort of the last time I got to work with Erlang uh, super heavily. So, so then somehow I have to ask about this. Somehow you went from Erlang to management to C++. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I mean, so I guess back, it was not too long after I joined Basho, I was like, I never want to be a manager at all. Uh -huh. Because people are like too non-deterministic. I was, I don't know, 15 years <laughs> in my career at that point. I'm like, no, no management for me. And then I got this like incurable form of cancer and I had to do chemo. Right. And like the doctors were like, hey, you've got like this many years left kind of thing. And it really made me reevaluate like, what is it I want to do with my life? Because I love coding. Yeah. But I'm never going to be the best in the world at it. Like, and, and I don't think that's going to be my legacy, if you will. And, yeah. and I realized the most meaningful work I had done to that point, uh, besides working with Erling, of course, uh, had been sort of <laughs> coaching and mentoring people. Uh. And so I was like, you know, I want to try and go into management and see if I can help people that way by building sort of good environments and so forth. And so starting at Basho and then for the next, geez, 12 years, I guess. I worked as a manager, as a VP of engineering. I did that at Basho. I did that at another startup. I did it at a couple of other startups, eventually landing at DigitalOcean, where I wound up becoming a VP of engineering. And then at another company called Packet, which got acquired by Equinix, where we again built another cloud. So, and then more recently at, at a crypto company as a VP of engineering. So like I've, I wound up spending the second half of my career, if you will, so far, just doing management stuff. And then when I left Edge and Node back in, December, I guess, of last year, I was like, I just, I want to get back to the tech. Like I've invested yeah. a lot in people. I've really enjoyed that work, but it's also like, it takes a lot out of you. Like it, because you're just, I think a lot of people think, well, you know, why don't you just code on the side? And the truth of the matter is, is that if you can make it through a normal management work day and have any energy left, you probably aren't going to feel like coding because you, you will have used up that chunk of your brain that has all of those sort of coding analytical capabilities. So I wound up uh, joining forces with a, a friend of mine locally, and we're doing a startup now doing computer vision stuff. Whoa. And, you know, I put together the first prototype with Python, and then I started building, we're doing some multi-object tracking stuff. I was like, this is just not going to be fast enough. And so now I'm 
neck deep in C++ uh, and it has been uh, an interesting experience. So that's okay. So I would I would have guessed that this if I were in your shoes, I would have been like, this is the perfect excuse to learn Rust or Zig. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm, or, I'm sure this crossed your mind. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I evaluated all those. So I looked at what I wanted. Honestly, the language I wanted to use was Golang. Um, okay. I've done a fair bit of Golang work and I really enjoy it. I mean, I started, I actually looked at Erlang first, Can't just between you and me, we won't tell anybody else, but uh, yeah, I looked at Erlang this. first, yeah, and I was like, well, I'm going to have to like write bindings for a bajillion C++ libraries, oh. and it's it's totally doable, it's just you spend a lot of time writing bindings, right? you know, and that's not really where I want to be spending my efforts right now. I mean, compared to like C, right? Like C bindings are, are usually like if something's written in C, it's probably going to be a lot easier to bind to yeah. than if it's written in C plus plus. Oh, vastly. And uh, C, but the problem is like all the computer vision libraries right now are written in C plus plus. Like got it. OpenCV, PyTorch, TensorFlow, Open3D, like all of these libraries that people use pretty broadly are C plus plus based with Python wrappers. And there's a there's a project out there called PyBind, which actually makes it pretty seamless to write bindings into Python from C++, which I think is why these things have worked out that way. Mm -hmm. So then I looked at Golang because I had seen some stuff that said that, you know, you could get automatically generated Golang bindings, not with C++, <laughs> uh, or it's primitive at best. I'd still wind up writing a lot of bindings. And because Golang is garbage collected the way that it is, I'd also have to do a lot of heavy thinking about, well, this is moving into C++ land, so what's going to happen with that memory? Mm. Do I have a finalizer on it? Yada, yada. I then looked at Rust because there is some very interesting work on bindings C++ natively into Rust structures. You still have to write some class interfaces and stuff, or at okay. least I couldn't figure out how not to do that, which may just be failing on my part. But it seemed like I was still going to have to maintain a fair bit of glue code for moving things in and out of C++. And I was anticipating doing a lot of that. I looked at NIM and Zig. I think NIM had the most mature sort of binding stuff uh, over Zig, but it wasn't, even that was still sort of questionable. I even wound up looking at D, which is a language that not many people talk about anymore. And that was more doable, but then I'm like, well, now I'm writing this weird syntax that looks almost like C++ that interfaces with C++ libraries. Like, how confused am I going to confuse myself? <laughs> so eventually I was just like, I know what the right thing to do here is just write it in C++. I know how to do it. It's not that terrible. And that's what I did. And so I took, you know, I took the Python app and I rewrote it in C++ in a week. We saw a 20% performance increase right off the bat without any sort of optimization wow. of memory utilization and stuff like that. And I now have direct access into all the libraries I need. I don't have to worry about sort of the, the global interpreter lock from Python and sort of interpretation problems and yada yada. So anyway, uh, yeah, long answer to your question. I wow. Guess. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'm curious what, because that's also been about 20 years since I did any C++, <laughs> certainly any C++ in anger. So I'm curious what what's changed. Like, what's uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of things are similar, but uh, surely some things have hopefully improved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely some improvements, like quality of life stuff. Like, I think introducing auto. So instead of having to declare the variable type, you can just say auto, and then when you assign to it, it infers the type, which is actually really nice for templatized stuff. It makes that a lot more sort of digestible. I think sort of having thread support built in to the language now. So there's like a stood, uh, stood thread subsystem. It, it's just a nice quality of life thing because like I was anticipating like, oh crap, I got to haul out the P thread reference. P threads, yeah. So like, yeah <laughs> I don't want to do that. But I mean, it's all just built in now. I think sort of, I don't worry so much about STL. Last time I wrote C++, like using STL was always sort of hit or miss, especially if you did anything with strings in a multi-threaded environment. Because some STL libraries didn't do, uh, they, they tried to do reference counting without locking, and that was a whole thing, and so forth. And, and now I don't have to worry about that so much. It's just they've resolved a lot of those issues. What else is new? Uh, type type name aliasing is kind of cool. Like the, instead of saying um, type def huge templatized type plus you know your your name, now you can say using you give it an alias, and then you can declare sort of, and it can be a partial template too. So you can do sort of templating subclassing, I suppose, is a way of putting it. But 
Yeah, instantiation, yeah. I've heard the claim made, but I have not attempted to even to verify this myself, but I've heard people say that, quote, something along the lines of, with modern C++, you can get about as much memory safety as Rust by using things like smart pointers and whatnot. Uh, I don't know. Well, if you don't have any Rust experience, maybe you can't directly make that no, comparison. I've, I've but, done some Rust. I, I have done okay. some Rust. Rust's model, like for the borrower checker and all that stuff, is so much stronger. Like C++, you could get that much, but you have to take action as the programmer. Whereas uh-huh. in Rust, you get the system enforces that on you. Yeah. So it's true. Like the the shared pointers, unique pointer template types are great. You know, the moving stuff, it's not that different from Rust in terms of like some of the semantics and whatnot. And there's definitely more that mindset of how do we make this stuff safer, but you still have to opt into it. Like you can still yeah. totally shoot yourself in the foot by just saying new X and then forgetting to delete it or whatever, or by, you know, copying it to a bunch of threads and just letting everybody read and write to it. Like Rust has <laughs> much stronger sort of conceptual framework around how you do all of this. And so I would say, yes, you can approach Rust, but it's never going to be as good as Rust uh, in this regard, I don't think. So what are you supposed to do instead of like new? And Because when I did it, like back in the day, it was like, you know, you make an instantiated class, you use the new keyword, and then you're responsible for using the delete keyword to delete it when you're done with it. And nobody's going to yeah. help you with that. So what are you supposed to do instead if you want the safe? So from what I know, and you got to understand, like I'm still, I, I just got my, you know, C++ uh, uh, Strips reference. Just came from Amazon the other day because I'm still catching up on all this stuff. But sure, sure. What I've been doing is you use a shared pointer, for instance, if it's something you're going to share mm-hmm. between different areas. And it, that's a template type that takes your actual class name. And then there's a function called std make shared or make unique, I guess. I see. Will instantiate the thing for you and chuck it into that smart pointer. And then whatever the semantics of the smart pointer are, you don't have to worry about deleting it. Got it. Is that the one that's, it's, is it reference counted or is it something else? I don't even remember. I, I know there's like one of them is reference counted, but I don't know if it's that one. It depends on the specific pointer you choose. So there's a, there's a library of different pointers, smart pointers that have different semantics so that you can pick that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Got so, it. Got it. But I mean, the thing is though, is the fact that I'm saying the words, there's a library of shared point or pointer implementations, like Rust, you're just not going to have that problem with Rust. Right. Like, like I mean, they do have something similar, like with the Arc and whatnot. But I don't know. It's just, it's not the same. You don't spend as much time thinking about pointers, I don't feel like, when I've written Rust as I do in C++. And, and thinking a lot about the memory. That said, I'm not a super fan of Rust. Like, in my mind, okay. I actually think C++ is easier than Rust. And, of course, Rust people will say, yeah, but it's not as safe, which is true. But... I find the Rust syntax is like C++ amped up. <laughs> and, and the borrower checker for all of its wonder and being able to you know, guarantee things around data races and whatnot, it requires a lot of understanding of the enti- how the entire system is structured to make sense of when you can borrow and when you can't. Yeah. And, and I think that, that it creates a lot of cognitive load, especially on newer developers, to think about things that you don't you just normally have to think about. Man. He's a 10 pound dog that thinks he's going to take on the world. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think Rust is just one of those languages where I really like a lot of the conceptual stuff, but I find when I do sit down and write Rust, I just spend so much time thinking about who owns what and how long they need to own it for that I don't feel like I spend as much time in C++ thinking about, for instance. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, like I said, 20 years since I wrote C++, I, I spent a lot of time writing Rust now. And I definitely agree, I spent a lot of time thinking about those things. It's definitely not like it just takes care of it for you. It's more like, like you said, you know, it, it prevents you from shooting yourself in the foot and you, you really have to opt out of it rather than opting into it. And also because it's there, I, I'm very reluctant to opt out of it. If there's no other way, I'll reach for the unsafe keyword and say like, okay, we're going to do some direct pointer stuff. But that's really a, a last resort in my book. Well, because it's dangerous, right? Like it's not, they, the language is structured for you to think of it as dangerous. And, and it's true. You can really hurt yourself on others. Yeah. That. yeah, for sure. But I mean, for me, I will say that something as somebody who, I mean, my memory of C++ was not positive. <laughs> and, and also, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I felt like if I'm going to be making a whole compiler, 
I'm just like scared of what I'm going to do to myself if I do it in C++. I'm just going to yeah. I'm going to have segmentation faults. I'm going to be like, how do I track this down? This is going to mm. be horrible. Like the code base is going to get big and then I'm not going to realize some point in here, somebody's not deallocating something or they're de- yeah, yeah. deallocating it twice. But where? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wonder also how much of that is where you're starting at because certainly for me with a C++ background, I think if I were like, well, all right, let me brush up on my C++ and try to learn the modern techniques I think, yeah, it would have been easier for me to learn that than it was to learn Rust from scratch. But I don't know if that's true of somebody who is like new to programming and doesn't know either language. Yeah, I, I've had a chance to see sort of programmers in earlier stages pick up Rust projects, like significant Rust projects, and, and dive into it. And I can tell you that, generally speaking, and I've also seen the same thing. So like at DigitalOcean, you know, we brought, as part of just building out the team, we tried to hire people earlier in their career. So I watched them come into large Golang code bases at Edge and Node. We had a number of engineers working on a large Rust code base. And when we brought new engineers in there, both earlier and late or mid experience, I could compare that. So I can tell you that bringing in an early career person into a Golang code base versus a Rust code base, people come up to speed way faster on Golang, like a matter of uh, a month or two, whereas Rust can take like six to nine months. I believe that, yeah. I mean, if you're really using all the memory management features, like I, I talked to Dan Bruder a while back on an earlier episode, the way they use Rust is unusual. They they basically use it as like, this is a nice language for our web server backend. We're just going to clone everything all the time and not worry about performance at all. So if you're doing that, then you're not going to have as much thinking about lifetimes and, and memory management. Like, I don't know, just clone it. <laughs> it's, it'll get taken care of eventually. And apparently they had a, a reasonable ramp up time. <laughs> well, yeah, I could see that really helping. But but again, like you're kind of, this is the thing about programming languages that always kind of gets me and, and that I strive not to do. And that's when people don't sort of speak them idiomatically, right? Like a programming language is designed to do something like a t- like any other tool. And so I think, yeah, you can totally do that with Rust. You just clone everything and call it good and you don't have to worry about that. At the same time, I would argue like, that A is not going to be very maintainable by experienced Rust people because they'll be like, why the heck are you doing all this cloning? <laughs> and now I have to go through and figure out what the lifetime should be because, you know, that wasn't done before. But there's also this aspect of like, you're not taking advantage of one of the, the language's greatest strengths, which is the borrow checker and all that stuff. Like, sure. I, I don't know. It's, it's a good point. It would bother me too. Like if I joined that team and came into that code base and I saw a clone being used, I would be like, oh no, 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 no. We need, we need references. We need to, <laughs> we need to stop. Right, that's why we have them, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I, I also acknowledge that, you know, if I were running that team, it probably would be the wrong choice to have somebody come in and make those changes. It would probably just mean that I would be a bad fit for that team. Yeah, potentially. But then, but now you're limiting people who can join your team because of how you're using the language. And from an organizational perspective, that's a little wonky because it's going to make it yeah. harder to, to hire people too. Yeah, there's definitely an unsung benefit to trying to choose a language that is a good fit for what you're actually going to be using it for from a hiring perspective, if nothing else. Like if you, yeah, if you, if you hire experts, they're going to want to use the language, you know, to the, to the, the way that degree. it's, yeah, I mean, because, right. and not just because that's what they're used to, but because that's, probably why they wanted to join your company is because they want to use the language in that way. <laughs> I mean, hey, I've totally joined companies because they were using the language I wanted to use, right? Like definitely yeah. with with Erlang and Basho, like that was part of the reason I joined because they were doing Erlang and I'm like, that's what I want to be doing all day. Yeah. So I, I do get that. And then, and then you can take it too far as well where people are like, well, we're only going to choose languages where we can hire the most people. And it's like, well, that's, you don't want to do that. But but there is a there's a balancing act here of knowing, sort of choosing the right tools for the job and then also using the tools appropriately so that you don't paint yourself into a corner from a hiring perspective or from a maintenance perspective. Yeah, that was something that we had to be really careful of at No Red Inc. Because like at, at first it, it didn't occur to us and then we kind of learned this the hard way. But like, so obviously like really big Elm shop, super into Elm. Most of the people we hired wanted to come there because, you know, they want to use Elm. However, uh, we started using Haskell on the back end and the way that we use Haskell on the back end was sort of like an intentional subset of it that was like, we we're basically trying to make like an Elm flavored Haskell because that's, that's all we wanted <laughs> and right, it didn't right. exist. But w- when we were doing like interviews and stuff, we had to be careful to set expectations of like, Hey, we're not using all of Haskell. We're intentionally using this Elm like subset of Haskell. 
And so if that's what you want, great, you know, come on in. But if it's not what you want, that's totally understandable, but that's just, <laughs> just so you know, you yeah, know, that's yeah. not, that's not what you're coming in for because yeah, I mean, we, we did have some people who we'd hired who for, for whatever reason were not into that style. They're like, no, I, w- I want to use like all these other features of Haskell and like, well, cool. We, we actually started out there and then we moved towards this more Elm flavored Haskell approach. But yeah, I mean, and that is part of why I started working on rock was, was just wanting to make a language that's like actually designed for this, you know, use case. Yeah, so uh, I I have not had a chance to sort of hear much about rock, so I'd love to hear more about that one too. Oh, <laughs> well, listen to this podcast, hear about it all the time. But uh, I'm actually surprised we've made it this far into the conversation without it coming up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, like you know, you and I talked about it uh, years ago, but back then I think it might have just been me working on it actually at the time. Mm-hmm. That's how long it was pre-pandemic. So now there's a bunch of people working on it. I mean, it's it's open source. Cool. You can check out the repo. There's I'm actually not even the top committer anymore. Yeah. So there's, I think, four or five people with like a thousand plus commits each and like a long tail of a of hundred some odd total contributors. Yeah. And actually, like the new job that I'm starting in about a month or depending on when this podcast goes out even sooner than that, <laughs> basically, they want to move their back end to rock. Wow. So, cool. yeah, it's 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 really cool. So we've had people doing advent of code in it this last year. Like, a yeah, it's like a handful of people, not not a ton. But that was kind of cool just to see like how different people choose to write rock because there's no like you know, big corpus of like, oh, just look, everybody writes it like this. So like people did it in like pretty different styles, which was really cool to see based on the different backgrounds. Like people who have an Elm background would write it in one style that looks a lot like Elm. But there were some people who wrote it, they're coming in from a Ruby background and they had never used Elm. And the way that they wrote, like solved Advent and Code looked totally different than the way that the Elm people did. There was another guy actually uh, who, who came in with an Elixir, not Erlang. I, I know you're original stick with the original like Erlang not oh, Elixir. I'm happy to unpack all my feelings on that if you ever want to but uh, yeah. Oh sure I mean yeah. I don't know like be careful because I've had Jose believe on the podcast so you know <laughs> he, he might hear this. But anyway um, we've had some like cool use cases so far but not really we haven't seen anyone making and I, I know why this is uh, this is something I'm gonna have to work on. Yeah. But we haven't seen anyone actually using it for like any of the really big use cases such as web servers or like command line apps. But we have seen some really cool niche use cases like somebody made a clock that where the logic it's like it's a physical clock that it looks like an LED but it's actually like bunch of little servos that like oh, wow. physically move things around and he implemented the logic for that in Rock and, and like po- shared it. Really cool. Also somebody else wrote a um, a ray tracer in Rock. Also really cool. So it's really exciting to see people using the language for useful stuff. That was kind of my big hope for the past year was like want to make take the language from something that's like proof of concept to like useful. And now it is. People have actually used it to implement multiple different use cases. And so my hope for 2023 is to make it like used in production by a company and hopefully more than one company. And that's going to be web servers and, and command line apps. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's that's fantastic. That's where we are. Yeah, I remember I, mean, I remember when you were sort of first starting to talk about it. Like I went looking, I, I think all there was was like a presentation you had done on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't able to find any printed docs or anything. So that's that's very cool. I have to go look at it again. Do you have C plus plus bindings by chance? We do not. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean that's 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 a hard project. Now, having said that, if you want to use C plus plus as a base and then write your own, I mean this is like a little bit of a tangent, but so basically, what Rock compiles down to, like if you write a Rock program, what it's going to compile down to is essentially a C library. We do some stuff in the compiler to like sort of mask that from you so that if you're like writing advent of code or something, it doesn't feel like that at all. It just feels like, I don't know, like I'm writing Go or Python or something. Right. But behind the scenes, that's actually what's happening. So every Rock program consists of two parts. One is called the platform. So when you're writing a Rock application, you have to pick a platform to write on. There's no such thing as like just a platformless Rock app. It's always yeah. like, I pick a platform. Now, somebody else probably implemented that platform. So for example, for Advent of Code, everybody used, there's this platform called Basic CLI, and I wrote it, and it's like some Basic CLI stuff, (laughs) Um, which is plenty for Advent of Code. And so like in the tutorial, it just talks about, you basically add this as like a package dependency. You're like, here's the platform I want. You give it the URL, and it's like, cool, I'll download that and set it up and whatever. You just, you know, hello world, great, up, up and running. But if you want, you can just build your own platform from scratch. And the way that the platform works is essentially the platform under the hood is written in a systems language that compiles down to an executable binary. And then you have these little sort of hook points that are basically like dynamically linked function calls that's going to be the compiled rock application. So 
you just say like, oh, okay, right here, I want to call out to this rock thing, which hand wave somebody will make exist in the future. And you can do that in whatever language you want. You C++, sure, we, we, we've had proof of concepts in C++. So if you wanted to for your machine vision thing, is that the right term? Computer vision. Yeah, computer vision. I was like, yeah. machine learning, computer vision, no, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Machine vision, no, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, computer vision. Yeah, so if you wanted to, you could take your app I mean, like right now you could do this, although I would caution you that, you know, Rock is in a, a state of battle testedness that I would not want to base my startup on it you know, <laughs> yeah, right now. I, I would yeah, take yeah. it more gradually than that. But if you wanted to, you could, uh, and also people on Rock, Zulip would totally be happy to help you with that. Brendan Hansconnect, who's one of the top contributors to Rock, period, works at Google and writes C++ all day. So he can definitely Ooh. like tell you exactly how to get that up and running if you're, yeah, yeah, you're cool. interested. But yeah, so basically, your entire Rock app will just compile down to a C function. It does all of its own memory management. It's a, like automatic reference counting and stuff like that. So you know you don't have to like spin up a garbage collector, worry about GC pause or anything like right. that. And actually, it also this is something that we usually want to explain this to people. I don't go into this level of detail, but it's something I think you'll be able to appreciate. The way that it does memory allocation is basically the platform is responsible for providing a couple of functions which rock will call like the compiled rock code will call one of them is called rock alloc has the same signature as malloc one is called rock dalloc has the same signature as free although they both also take an extra parameter if you want for alignment in case you can make use of that what's cool about that is that that basically means that you can just do all your own allocation for you can you specify how rock wants to allocate so you can implement rock alloc as just like oh i'll just call malloc and return it but also if you're doing like a rena allocation or something like that something fancier you're totally in charge of that go for it and rock will just do all that for you. So, so actually, like ironically, this the use case that you have is is a really good example of the type of thing that I would hope in the long term that Rock would be good at. It's like where people might use like a Lua or a Python. It's like, but I want something that like runs faster. Like Rock is a monomorphizing compiled to LLVM compiler that actually we demonstrated. If you write a pure functional quick sort with recursion and everything else, I give us strangely we talked about this a couple of years ago. It actually compiles down to be faster than go at quicksort even though go can do like direct mutation and like for loops and stuff um <laughs> yeah. it's so optimized uh we do a bunch of tricks and i go into like how we do that but it was faster than every implementation we tried among go java javascript c plus plus rock was second fastest after c plus plus so yeah quick sorting a million numbers <laughs> that's fantastic i'll just throw this out there because it's been on my mind the last few days and it's driving me batty but like one, the one sort of innovation I would love to see from a programming language is like, I guess, auto vectorization or something along those lines, right? Like seamless integration with CUDA devices. Like it is such a pain in the butt right now to yeah. do that stuff. And I don't know why. Like, I mean, I know why, but like, <laughs> it's just kind of like, how has nobody solved this problem yet? I agree. It would be awesome. I, I, I too would like to see a language do that. I mean, we, we've talked about it briefly with Rock, but it, it really seems like it's like, it's a lot of scope creep at least right yeah. now, if we wanted to get into that game. Because like right now, Rock is very intentionally good at being embedded into things. And, and that's because it has like very minimal, it, is, it actually doesn't even depend on libc. Like you don't, if you don't use libc, you can still use Rock. It's just these like, you know, five functions or whatever you have to provide for memory management. That's it. However, having said that, that also means that it doesn't know what a graphics card is. Like, it's just like, I don't know. I'm just machine instructions. <laughs> so yeah, that, that would be tricky for Rock to do, I think. Yeah, I mean, I... It's just, I think the thing is, is like, because everybody's doing AI stuff these days, like every time you declare a tensor or whatever, you know, whatever you call it, an array of numbers that you want the GPU to process, like there's a whole lot of work you have to do just to tell it, hey, this one goes on the GPU and hey, go run these things and then give me the results back. And yeah, I just feel like this is an area really ripe for some innovation from languages because... It, it's just way too hard right now. You have to think way too much about the GPU as a specific device instead of, you know, I we don't think about, I guess sort of the, the best analogy I have is from when I was very young where there was the extended memory stuff, right, on DOS yeah. where everybody had to, uh, you had to explicitly do some sort of interrupt thing to get into the extended memory, yada, yada. That's gone away now. We just think about memory, you know, computer memory is just, you know, we don't have to think about how we access it. And I, I feel like GPUs are sort of ripe for a similar abstraction or, or rethinking so that they're more integrated with how we do the rest of our compute. Like, just imagine how cool you could, that would be. Anyway. So I, I have not used it, but the language, if I were to guess that one language is good at this, I would guess Futhark. Futhark, I believe, is the name of 
where the name comes from. It's like one of the written languages from like uh, like old Norse like Vikings and stuff era. There's like Elder Futhark and Younger Futhark. I don't know. But basically, it's a programming language that is designed for array programming. And it's specifically, I believe, intended to be run on GPUs. Now, I don't know. That's not necessarily the same thing as auto vectorization in the sense like I don't know if it's like good at being like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll interface with the GPU for you and do all that versus if it like you compile it down and then you run it directly. I've never used it. But I have heard that it's really good at, I mean, it's designed to be very good at like, you know, just GPU that, stuff that really problem. fast. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds really cool. I, uh, I, I looked it up. So I definitely want to sit down and take a look at that. Um, nice. And maybe, maybe it'll never be a thing where it's a seamless sort of, you know, moving between them. It just feels way too rough right now. It feels to me a lot like those early days of memory management. Um, and it feels like, achievable. Yeah. It seems like it, it could be yeah. somehow. But but definitely seems like it would require some language level stuff. I don't know that libraries are ever going to get us there, as far as making it feel seamless. Yeah, that's a fair point. Fair point. So Erlang and Elixir, do we want to talk about that or <laughs> I mean, should we wrap I, up? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll I'll give a few brief thoughts on it. Like I don't have anything against sort of anyone using Elixir or anything like that. I think the work that Jose has done and sort of the rest of the Elixir team is it's made Erlang more accessible, right? Because the challenge with Erlang, for better or worse, is that it has a very simplistic but very unique syntax that most <laughs> people have never encountered. And it feels just too weird, right? Uh-huh. Like a capital letter makes my thing a variable and a lowercase letter means it's an atom. What the, how, why? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I personally like it, but you know, I get why people don't. I am not a... I guess I'm not a super fan of Elixir from the aspect, like I like that it makes it more approachable for people and more people can use Erlang. That's yeah. cool. And the Beam VM. But I think sort of my fundamental issue with it is that anytime you build, you know, a VM, you actually have a language in mind, right? Like there's specific True. things about the language that the VM is designed for. Right. And Erlang was, you know, the Beam VM was designed for Erlang, I would argue. I'm sure there's probably somebody in Sweden who disagree with me. Yeah, I don't think that's really debatable. I, like, definitely was historically. Like, that's just a fact. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know. Like, I don't know if the people working on the Beam uh, implementation, you know, had bigger, grander plans than just Erlang. But oh, I see. I see. I see. Yeah. From, from what I can see, it was designed for Erlang. And what that means is that if yeah, you can take another language, compile it down to the bytecode, and run it on the VM. The problem is like all the concepts that you're going to run into and the errors, you're going to have to translate from Beam into Erlang because that was the original intent. And then again, back out to whatever your language is. Um, and like Verding was working on uh, LFE, which was Lisp for Erlang. I didn't know it was Robert Verding, like the one of the original authors of, of Erlang. Yeah, I didn't know he was the one behind that. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, that was, uh, he was the one working on that by my recollection. Hopefully I didn't remember that wrong. It was the same thing. Like, yeah, you could write Lisp, but you had to understand, well, I guess Lisp translates a little bit better, but like when an error comes up, you had to know the error was more in Erlang terms than Lisp terms. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily idiomatic. And that's I, that for me comes back to the, idi- the idioms, if you will, of, of languages and the VMs that support them. It's like when you speak those fluently, it's less cognitive overhead. Whereas if you're using a language like Elixir, you've got to understand both Elixir and Erlang and the BVM, which is just a lot to keep in your head at once. Right. So maybe a way, a way to say, if I can like just check my own understanding, it's like from your perspective, you know, Erlang already meets your needs. And if you were to go to Elixir, maybe it might have some niceties, but there's an unavoidable downside of an extra translation step. That's right. Uh, whenever, especially whenever anything goes wrong. And also if you're like using Erlang libraries or whatever, as opposed to just being able to do everything in Erlang and have it just be a, a fit like a glove with the, the the underlying technology. And so, yeah, maybe other people, I'm sure it's not just beginners. Like I'm sure there's like more advanced users who like, you know, macros or, or other things from, yeah. from Elixir. But if, if it's already meeting your needs, then like those upsides don't outweigh the downsides. Yeah, I mean, we saw the same thing, like there was a while there where people were doing a lot of languages on top of Java VM, right? Like oh, so sure. they would, Ruby was probably one of the biggest ones that did that. Yeah, and they definitely JRuby, saw, like, right. Yeah, JRuby, like, and they definitely saw like performance improvements and stuff, but it didn't become right. super widespread. And you sort of have to ask the question of like, why didn't everybody just, if it's so much better from a performance perspective? And the reason is that it was just a little bit different in important ways. Like it behaved mm-hmm. just a little bit different than the original VM. 
And so those are the kinds of things that like you wind up, it doesn't seem that bad when you're building it. You're like, well, yeah, okay. It's a little bit different, but Hey, you get all these other bells and whistles. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, is like when you're talking about providing that fundamental sort of platform that the language is running on and it's the semantics are a little bit different. That's enough cognitive overhead, enough friction to make it hard for people to use it. And as a result, doesn't get the adoption. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's yeah. people are going to be like, well, I run large scale JRuby or whatever. And it's like, sure, yeah, sure. I, I'm sure there's <laughs> limitations out there, but, but at the end of the day, it's not the common thing that people do because it's just, right. it's too different. There's, there's just a little bit of mismatch there. And I, I don't know if that's true with Elixir and Erlang. I've just not been a super, I, I'm like, look, if you want the Erlang VM, use Erlang, right? Like <laughs> that's the language. Uh, it's really designed for it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can appreciate that perspective. I was thinking, I, I've had three different companies that I've worked at that have done similar things. So one was CoffeeScript, which you know compiles to JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elm, which also compiles to JavaScript, was very different. And then Scala, which yeah, compiles Scala, it to right. JVM, right? That's right. So yeah, and, and now that you mention it, I mean, I, I remember having different experiences when it came to that mismatch. Like CoffeeScript is really just a syntax on top of JavaScript. So right. it was like, when you get an error, the annoying thing would be that the line numbers might be different or something like that. Yeah. But it, it was it was like fundamentally, it's like okay. I mean, this is this is like it's not close. that far off. Yeah. Right. Right. With Elm, very different experience in the sense that like I just didn't get JavaScript errors. Like it just wouldn't. <laughs> like the compiler would catch them all. So like if I got any kind of an error, it was going to be I was, was I was going to handle it in Elm land. So like the only time I would ever really step out into JavaScript land is if I was doing some sort of interop. At which point, definitely that becomes harder than the, like if, if i was just using javascript whereas in CoffeeScript it was totally smooth like interop was just like trivial it's like i just call it it's like the same, yeah. same, basically <laughs> same language it all works out and then scala i think was was somewhere in between where i don't remember getting as many like java sort of stack traces um as i would in CoffeeScript with like javascript stack traces but i definitely remember like there was a split. Like sometimes I would get a stack trace and it was like, oh yes, this comes from the Scala side and sometimes it would come from the Java side. And as it happened, I had a background in Java. So I was like, okay, I know, I know what this means. But, but yeah, I can see if I were like a beginner coming into Scala, there'd probably become some point at which I would have to learn some Java just to like understand what what certain problems were. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's the thing is like, it, again, it's, it's cognitive overhead because now you're talking about understanding semantics of the VM that you're operating in, understanding the original language things that might be showing up through the, through the cracks, you know, in the wall or whatever. And then also understanding the language you're using right now. And they may all be, have very different semantics and how they, you know, think about the world. And like the other thing that pops up is not just uh, like the error cases, but also like performance issues. Like if you're doing high performance stuff, Scala like had all sorts of weird issues where you could kick yourself into sort of infinite memory growth and whatnot, because and this is where sort of the language was a fundamental mismatch with the JVM, right? Like the language was really designed to be, you know, an immutable functional language or immutable like. Right. And yet it was implemented on a platform where immutability was not actually a thing. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's final and I guess that's almost immutable, but you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah right. It's just not designed for that. If you're setting out to build a, a VM for a, an immutable, you know, based functional language, you don't build the JVM. <laughs> no, you don't. And and like Erlang is a great example of this, right? Like it is actually immutable. And that lets them take all sorts of interesting shortcuts around, well, hey, we're gonna have a garbage collector per process. And then, you know, we don't deallocate while the while the process is running unless we absolutely need to or whatever. Those kinds of things yield huge performance benefits when you take advantage of them with the language that it was designed for. You start interfacing that with C, which I had to do a lot of when I was writing Erlang because we had to get down into sort of disk drivers and writing directly to partitions and stuff. And now you're having to think about, well, wait a minute, like you're not going to delete this memory. If I use the processes memory allocator, that might work for this case. But then if I need to pass this data to another thread to actually do the writing in C, I have to clone it or I have to think about these other things. So like, who knows what they're going to do to it? Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's, you just wind up having to think about all of the languages that are, that are playing together, which is why sort of using one language and the VM it was designed for together. In my experience, you just have much less cognitive overhead. You lose nice syntax sometimes, but I found that it's better to give up some syntax than to give up uh, that cognitive overhead personally. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like I, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but this is actually, it has been one of my design goals with Rock from the beginning. This is actually where the platforms and then the applications built on a split comes from is the idea is that 
if you want, you can be a rock programmer who only ever writes rock code. And because there's that really hard split, it's like somebody else, somebody else who has a different knowledge set and is thinking about different things and you know, more cognitive overhead is, is working with two different languages so that you can have, and may, hopefully many more people can have the pure rock experience and, and no other language. Um, and they don't have to think about it, but the language is designed to, for that to work out. Like it's designed to have this, this lower level thing that's completely behind the scenes to you. Whereas I, I think a lot of, I mean, you mentioned like, you know, calling C from, from Erlang, there's a lot of languages and frameworks and, you know, libraries and stuff like that, that end up doing that on an ad hoc basis. It's like just mm-hmm. this one library is going to like call C or, or like, right, right. you know, my web server, part of it's implemented in C and then the rest of it's implemented in this higher level language, which means that I think it spreads more. A lot more people end up needing to do that to be able to get stuff done. And hopefully by centralizing it in one place, we can be, have it be the case that a lot more people have just the, <laughs> the simpler experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it sort of has a lot of potential for that. You know, I, I think the intent with some of these bytecode interpreters was to do something similar, right? But the problem is, is again, if you're not thinking of, like saying, okay, someone could write bytecode and someone actually right. doing it, right? Versus where, where you're doing with the platform where it's like, these are the API points and this is how you're supposed to use it. Like, I think being a lot more intentional about that opens the door to, to sort of a better outcome. But uh, a lot of these, I think a lot of people have tried to build VMs for it, but it just, it's very hard to do. It's not that easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and VMs have to make design choices, right? They got to be good at certain things and, and worse right. others. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, we talked about a bunch of different stuff. We started off on Perl and ended up on C++ and, and Erlang. Uh, and anything rock. else we should talk about? Yeah, Rock. Uh, anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? No, I don't. I can't really think of anything at this point anyway. Cool. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining me, Dizzy. It was, it was great to catch up with you. Likewise, likewise. Thanks so much for having me and uh, I look forward to chiming in sometime. Awesome. 